Missed the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. The Prime Minister brags all about the millions of vaccine doses he bought, but gives zero details on when we'll get them. Aaron O'Toole joins me to talk about what we aren't being told. This should be the day businesses get out of the red and into the black, but this Black Friday, many are barely hanging on. And we hear so much about the Iron Ring, but is it in place? Why are we seeing so many outbreaks in long-term care? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? I know people are really eager to find out when are we going to get to that starting line? When are we going to start uh, giving people vaccines? And we're working as hard as we can to make that as quickly as possible. But at the same time, what really matters is when we get to cross the finish line. And the fact that the doctors highlighted that if all goes according to plan, we should be able to have uh, the, uh, the majority of Canadians vaccinated by next September puts us in very good stead. Mm. Yeah, Canada's back all right. We're back in the vaccine line. What actually matters is not cliches, it's getting people vaccinated, and Canada is going to be waiting for that. Alex Pearson with you on this very busy Friday, the 27th of November. And the Prime Minister came out today with what looks and sounds a lot like a vaccine plan, but uh, is anything but. Because what we didn't get today were any actual details. We got no dates, no expectations. We just got this word salad. And Trudeau announced that Major General Danny Fortin will lead the vaccine rollout across the country. Great. Problem is the general's not going to have any vaccines to roll out because there Trudeau was dodging and weaving. What he didn't do was give anything but direct answers to what many other countries already know and are going to start delivering to millions in just a matter of weeks. Because Trudeau was asked repeatedly, when will Canadians get vaccines? Not a hard question. And he came up with a new talking point. It's not about the starting line. It's all about the finish line. Well, no. Canadians need to get vaccines started as soon as possible. Because until we do, we're locked down. People are dying. And businesses will be crushed. And so it's great. Trudeau keeps repeating how great our portfolio of vaccines is, how many billions we've spent on vaccines. It's not so great, though, if we can't get them. But the bigger revelation was that if this thing goes well, if, and he changed this talking point a little bit, it started as a majority, but then it turned into just over half of Canadians could be vaccinated by next September, almost a year from now. We are uh, hopeful that things are going to happen quickly, but at the same time, we need to reassure Canadians and we need to be able uh, to say confidently that these vaccines are safe, which is why uh, we're very interested in what people around the world are doing. But Canadian experts and Canadian scientists will be driving uh, the safety of Canadians every step of the way. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they will. They'll just sit back and watch for months and months. Oh, looks like it's going well there and over there and over there. Looks good. Yeah. Well, here's the reality. The United States 
will have approval of a vaccine in two weeks, and they're going to start delivering vaccines immediately. And we're told here in Canada that by the end of December, 30 million Americans will be vaccinated. And Trudeau was pressed on this because Health Canada is also expected to approve a vaccine in the very same time frame. So this has nothing to do with making sure it's safe, because if Health Canada signs off on it, then it's safe. The real answer is because we won't have any supply to deliver. And if it's just weeks away from a, you know, an approval, why is it only now that the general's being appointed to oversee the rollout? I mean, I have no doubts in General Fortin. I mean, it's, it's he who will likely save Trudeau's rear end. But the United States build a plant. They build a plant called Warp Speed. This was done months ago in the spring to the tune of $12 billion. So this seems just a little late in the game to be saying, oh, by the way, here's the general that will run it, roll it out. Does like, is he going to do it overnight? No, these things take time. It's a very big country. So there you go. There's no plan because we're still months from delivery because we still don't have refrigerations needed. Apparently they're being ordered, but until those arrive, vaccinations can't be sent because they'll go bad. This guy had one job, okay? The Trudeau government had one job. Sure, they gave out bags of money. You know, they were supposed to order rapid testing, supposed to secure the border, but really the big job that they had was getting a vaccine. And now they're scrambling to make it look like it's done when it is not. And so in a matter of weeks, over the Christmas holidays, we are going to be sitting back watching dozens of countries. We're going to be watching the United States, Britain, Germany, India, even Mexico. Mexico's starting in a couple of days. They're going to get freedom by rolling up their sleeve. And what will we be doing? So by the time 2.5 billion other people, this is what the, the timelines are reading, by the time 2.5 billion other people in other countries are vaccinated, we are still going to be waiting, which means they get their freedom back, they get to reignite their economies, they'll be saving lives, and we'll still be in lockdown. People will still be sick and dying, and businesses will continue to get destroyed. And so while dozens of countries are sprinting over the starting line because they actually do have a starting line, we're going to be limping behind. But hey, he's got our back. So how did we get here? Well, because what Mr. Trudeau failed to do is the one thing that is the most important thing in saving Canadians, not to mention this country. He naively signed a deal with China back in the spring, which fell through because what do you know? China can't be trusted. He poured millions into a manufacturing facility in Quebec that can produce vaccines, but huh, what do you know? Nothing was built. But even if that did come to fruition, his procurement minister, who's a lawyer by profession, hasn't got a clue how to procure a contract. And she failed to get basic licensing rights to produce vaccines. Mexico did. India did, Canada did not. So even if we 
could produce them, we didn't bother to get the rights. And on top of all of that, these deals were not struck until August, months after all these other countries. And so that's why it's not about the starting line, because Canada didn't even have a pair of running shoes. We didn't even order them. And so now you're seeing all this confusion. Now all these questions. And the provinces, they can't plan until they're told what's going on. And today, Premier Ford was asked about it several times and said, you know, delivery is going to be a logistical nightmare. Uh, and all he has right now is the prime minister's word. I didn't get the answer we wanted to hear. None of the premiers got the answer they wanted to hear. But in saying that, I'm going to take the prime minister for his word. You know, he, he, he's mentioned stuff in the past and he's, he's pulled through. But I can't emphasize enough to the prime minister. The clock is ticking. Uh, we're we're going to be uh, hopefully getting getting these vaccines sometime, hopefully, again, in, in January. Uh, I asked him the, the, the three simple questions. You know, when are we getting it? What type of vaccine are we getting? And how much of that va vaccine are we getting? Uh, to, to have General Hillier make a proper plan, uh, we need to know. Mm -hmm. We need to know. And all we've got is hope. You know, we've now got a couple of very accomplished generals ready for battle and no details so that they can make this war plan and the trudeau government may have our backs but clearly they have no vaccine to put in our arms and you know he survived snc he survived blackface we and all the other scandals but when it comes to failing a delivery of a vaccine maybe this will finally be a wake-up call for canadians I know people are really eager to find out when are we going to get to that starting line? When are we going to start uh, giving people vaccines? And we're working as hard as we can to make that as quickly as possible. But at the same time, what really matters is when we get to cross the finish line. And the fact that the doctors highlighted that if all goes according to plan, we should be able to have uh, the, uh, the majority of Canadians vaccinated by next September puts us in very good stead. Mm-hmm. Okay, lots uh, to pick apart there if all goes according to some kind of non-existent plan uh, being the key word there. Uh, but the only finish line Canadians face when it comes to these vaccines apparently is the one we're going to be limping over. Because in just a matter of days, Mexico's announced is going to start uh, vaccinating people. Germany, UK, even India are going to be starting in a couple of uh, weeks. And by the end of December, the United States will have inoculated 30 million of its people. And here in Canada, I mean, the prime minister keeps bragging about having the biggest vaccine portfolio ever, but no one cares how big it is. It is useless if we can't get vaccines into Canadians' arms. And right now, you know, no matter how many times he's asked, the prime minister will not give a timeline for when Canadians can expect to at least see vaccines arrive. But he did say if, and this talking point changed a couple of times, if all goes according to plan, he said a majority will be covered. And then he kind of changes that half of the country will be vaccinated by September. But that is, what, a year from now? That's a very long time. Let us ask uh, the leader of the Federal Conservative Party his thoughts. Aaron O'Toole joins me now. Good to have you. Great to be back, Alex. 
All right. First of all, let me ask you about that phone call that didn't happen, but apparently you were told and uh, spoken to about these conspiracy theories your conservative MPs are um, are, are spreading, um, and then that was retracted. That had to have been an awkward call. Um, the prime minister basically acknowledged how badly they they screwed up. It kind of also showed that he comes into these calls really <laughs> basically using them as stunts, whereas I had a <clears throat> very detailed series of issues I wanted to raise on the U.S., on, on vaccines, on, on COVID, on Keystone, on defense. And <clears throat> it was disappointing to see he'd, he'd already had his printout made. In fact, it came out when I was with some of my senior team right after a meeting with industry on the vaccines. And they said, apparently, you've already spoken to the prime minister. Uh, so I, I took the call because I'm there to fight for better responses and, and a plan for the vaccines. But even even their readout tonight shows that these guys are a bit of a gong show on on how they're leading things in the middle of a pandemic. Well, I mean, if you want to accuse someone of fake news or conspiracies, maybe you don't push them out yet, you know, yourself. And so therefore that <laughs> should put the water on that one. But let's talk about the story that really, I mean, I have been sp- speaking about this since August uh, uh, when I had Professor Amir Adaran on, who was waving the alarm bells back then, uh, regardless of his politics or whether I agree with him, he was warning that we were so late to the game in ordering vaccines that, you know, we were going to be last in line. And now all of his um, predictions seem to be coming true but you know in a matter of weeks we're going to be watching countries all over the world vaccinating and no matter how many times the prime minister was asked today we could not get a basic timeline and yet we now have hired a general to run the national program but you know you would think with the announcement of that hiring we would have a timeline oh absolutely i think they hired uh, major general fortan you know i'm a veteran i'm a big fan of of the military helping in these critical operations. They only did that because Premier Ford already has a plan in place uh, with General Hillier, you know, the Ontario general, uh, for their plan uh, for well over a week. And they're waiting for the, the, the Liberals federally to actually roll out the national plan. So all the provinces kind of have their logistics plans ready to go, but they don't know when it starts. They don't know exactly the timetable. They don't know some of the full details on refrigeration and particularly one of the vaccines, the Pfizer one, needs minus 70 storage. Do we mm-hmm. do we have that? Has the federal government procured that and secured it? So everyone's waiting, and Mr. Trudeau won't even say when the first vaccines will arrive. They won't confirm anything. And I said, people know a vaccine's coming. They're going to see some of our allies actually getting them in the next few days, Alex. Canadians at least deserve a plan. They at least deserve honesty. And I think the Liberals are hiding up the fact, as Professor Adaran said, they bungled this going back to last summer. And I talked to Mercedes Stevenson earlier, who said on Sunday she has some news to break because she was uh, able to find out where we are in the queue. That was a question many times uh, asked today about, you know, okay, where is Canada when it comes to being in line for these uh, vaccines? And so hopefully we'll know by then because it should give us a better indication uh, as to whether they're arriving in January, as Dominic LeBlanc is insisting, or if they're coming sometime in March, which uh, Dr. Naju kind of said would be an optimistic 
um, prognosis. Uh, so I don't really know when they're coming. I do know that, however, for Canadians who are exhausted by this pandemic, um, you know, it is not just going to be frustrating. It's going to be completely defeating, if not devastating, for the businesses that will continue to remain shut down and people locked down and people dying uh, while others get vaccinated. So in your mind, what went wrong? Was it that we procured too late? Was it the fact that when we signed these documents, these uh, these um, contracts, that we did not uh, put in a clause to get the vaccination rights uh, so that we could produce them here? Where was the big mistake made? Well, there's no leadership from the top. From Justin Trudeau, Minister Haiju has been a disaster on everything from the border to mass to, to rapid tests. Uh, there's there's no ability for them to advance a critical file forward. I also think, Alex, and I'm sure you've read parts of this, probably Mercedes has as well, we've been asking a lot about whether Mr. Trudeau put all of his eggs into the Sino basket, which was the joint venture with China, yes, mm-hmm. the country he admires the most, Mr. Trudeau, to come up with a joint manufactured vaccine. And that plan fell apart in late August. And it appears they may have just scrambled after that fell apart to sign deals with with Pfizer, Moderna and and others. But those deals did not permit manufacturing to occur in Canada. So the fact that they they kind of doubled down on partnering with China, of all people, uh, maybe excluded us from making this here. And because we're not making it here, we're going to be last or later in line. And so I think The reason we're not getting clear answers on any of this, Alex, is they don't want to show people just how mismanaged this was, in part because of of this CanSino failed deal. I I have no doubt in in General Fortin, I think it will actually be the military that probably cleans up a lot of this mess because they are able to pivot, as you uh, are aware, because you've got the experience of military, they'll be able to kind of clean up the mess, um, you know, that that has been left to them. Um, But but there are a lot of logistical issues that they have to now plan for. And if they can't get a timeline, it'll be very hard to. And one of those big things is refrigeration. Have you got any idea how many refrigerators? Refrigerators we have uh, procured that are specialized to, you know, hold the vaccinees that the vaccinations that have to be refrigerated at a very specific temperature, and and we can't even get the vaccine if those aren't in place. Do we know anything about that? No. In fact, we've asked the, the government repeatedly in question period. We had the minister for over three hours. She didn't give a single answer. She just read talking points that are. We have a big portfolio. So hey, we may have the most doses. In 2024, Alex, you know, that doesn't mean anything. We need a plan on the urgency of it. And I I just don't think it is there. Uh, Personally, I don't think we have the the freezer capacity right now, and they haven't been ordering. Now the entire world is trying to order this. And I I think, I I know this actually from, from some of our sources, there will be some provinces that won't have the logistics cycle ready to accept the Pfizer vaccine. So we're already going to see a breakout of different parts of the country getting it and other parts not, largely because the provinces have been waiting months for the federal government to talk to them about rollout. So I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to realize Canadians will be getting it late and some Canadians will be getting it months after other Canadians. And I think that's going to lead to a lot of uncertainty, lost hope, more stress, more mental health challenges amidst the pandemic. So it's time for some uh, serious leadership. I just don't think the Trudeau government's up for it. 
Well, I mean, uh, yeah, but it would be impossible to go to an election at this point. I mean, we're weeks away from Christmas and, uh, you know, we're in lockdown in several places. So any change of leadership probably won't happen for a little while. And so what do we do? The longer this thing goes on and the longer we are unvaccinated, the longer our, our economy suffers. I mean, if we're the only country that's not getting vaccinated, it takes us back to 2003 when we had SARS and we were basically a pariah around the world where no one came here. No one wanted to do business with us. No one wanted to come near kind of the the germ filled, uh, you know, uh, place. Uh, and so there are real long economic consequences the longer this goes on, not to mention a lot of sick people and more dead people. Yeah, that's why we've been pushing, as you know, from August and September on the rapid test piece. Those are finally kind of landing here. We're again, we're months after Europe, months after the U.S., who've been using millions of rapid tests to at least let workers get to out of quarantine earlier, more choices to keep the economy open. I also reiterated to the Prime Minister today, as I, as I asked Dr. Tam last week, I want more data being released. I want data on infection locations. We need to know where people are, are coming down with this so smarter decisions can be made by Canadians. And we have the ability to make the smartest decisions to keep the economy as strong as possible. So we don't just need the infection rates and the sort of numbers people are getting numb to. We need data to make smarter decisions. And we're going to continue to push for that because the economic uh, balance here is critical. And uh, just before I let you go, I mean, there's always politics at play, no matter what the politics is, um, you know, but at this point, Canadians just want, I think, some straight truth and they want to be able to manage their expectations. And from what conversations you've had with the prime minister, from sources within who you talk to, what is your best guess then when we're actually going to see vaccines roll out and a majority of the Canadian population getting protected? Well, here's where I know the Liberals so well, Alex. What the, the, They know they've dropped the ball here big time. And even Professor Adoran, as you know on the show, he was the biggest fan of the Liberal government a few months ago, uh, and now he's turned on them. Um, a lot of people know they've really dropped the ball. So what they will do is they'll use the, the size and, and heft of government who are going to be spending uh, billions of dollars on vaccines. They'll talk some of the companies into giving us a small batch earlier. So we're going to be able to say, oh, he's got a few in February or or late January, but it won't actually be the consistent supply we need. It will again be uh, a PR stunt. Uh, We can't get an answer of when the first ones will come or the rate. We can't even get an answer on whether we have the refrigeration ready for the Pfizer one, which is the first one rolling out. And they're not going to send doses to countries that can't keep this. This is like the most precious commodity on earth. So they're yeah. not going to give it to somewhere where it can't be stored at minus 70. So we're demanding answers. The fact that they're refusing weeks to answer questions shows they have no plan. Time will tell on this one. Mr. O'Toole, thank you for coming on. Good to talk to you. And we'll see what happens, uh, what Monday's conversation brings with the budget or update. All, always a pleasure, Alex. Thank you. Great to have you on what has been a very different kind of Black Friday, because this is the kind of day that we would normally turn on the TVs and you see you know, people turning and into animals, the chaos of people knocking each other over, and then they trample small children all so that they can get a cheap TV. COVID, of course, calmed the crowds. And so there wasn't any, obviously, in-store shopping in the Toronto area and the GTA, not uh, certainly from where I sat. 
And there were some crowds in the Halton and York area, but certainly more spaced out smaller and they weren't rushing into the stores to find their deals. And uh, Black Friday is called this because it's when a business, you know, businesses are supposed to finally get out of the red and into the black. And that's why these weeks before Christmas are so crucial to businesses because this is when they actually get to make money. And of course, in 2020, businesses will be lucky just to stay alive. And since a lot of people can't get into the stores during these most crucial shopping weeks, who knows what the numbers are going to look like uh, when they come in January to crunching those numbers for Stats Canada. Robert Levy is founder and president of BrandSpark International Shopper Army. Good to have you, Robert. Nice to be here. All right. So this was not your typical Black Friday because uh, most people probably had to turn online. Absolutely. But isn't it like... There's a silver lining. I mean, isn't it better than lining up at four o'clock in the morning and then turn on your your TV and already you feel like you've missed it because you're compressed? I mean, Black Friday has actually become the biggest shopping event of the year. It used to be Boxing Day. Um, I know. It's now yeah. moved to Black Do we even Friday. have Boxing Day anymore? I mean, they start sales back in like October now. They do. The cool thing about planning all of this now, and this year was a bit of an aberration because Prime Day was not that long ago. It's usually in July. But Black Friday lets you buy the presents you need before the holidays, before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And then Boxing Day, you can go back and kind of exchange everything you got for what you want. So, in fact, you can take advantage of both uh, Black Friday and Boxing Day and then kind of still feel like you haven't missed the opportunity. So I think there's some real benefits. And this year also, Black Friday sales started earlier because I think the stores realized there's capacity issues, lockdown, no lockdown, really to give people a chance to start saving earlier. And so it's actually been stretched out. And for people, I think there are all sorts of benefits, not only for consumers, but I think also for Canadian stores, whether they're large, larger Canadian retailers, but also the small local ones, I think, can really benefit from now the direction that is set um, because of COVID. You know, it's really been an acceleration, not a complete change. And I think now um, there are a lot of great examples of success stories. Yeah, it's hard to tell if 2020 will be the real turning point. I mean, when you discover online shopping, it's kind of a game changer where it's like, hey, I don't have to park. I don't have to get out of my car. I can just go and to the computer and click, click, click away you go. And it's it's all easy. It doesn't even feel like you're spending money. Um, but 2020, and 2020 has forced that kind of on everybody. Will you um, and do you believe that this is going to change and kind of continue to drive online as being the way that people do their their Black Friday shopping? I do believe um, that this is a change that's been coming and will continue. And I think a lot of it has to do with trust. A lot of people perhaps shopped a few categories, but not other categories and other people who haven't shopped. There was really a question of, of trust around, you know, the, the retailer and also the search part of it. And then the expectation and then the returns and then the quality and all of those things. And I think you know, we all got used to it with Amazon and those expectations become very, very clear in terms of, you know, I don't want to pay for delivery anymore. I need it the next day, whether I need it or not, who knows, but I need it the next day. And all of a sudden, now that other uh, platforms have caught up to give, to give consumers that Amazon experience, whether they're ordering online, and then you have like the PC Express that's created the curbside pickup and, and, and standards that now 
other companies are matching. And once they match them and they add, a, you know, so the technology is there, whether it's being helped by Canadian company Shopify or other yeah. platforms that are emerging. But then if you just match customer service together with technology, then that's the magic. And that's what Canadian companies have. And now when you have technologies like chatbots and, you know, you have the ability to go deep and really feel comfortable and trust um, what's going on. And I think that's been the game changer that people all of a sudden trust it. They know which brands to trust. And they also have a new currency. It's called ratings and reviews. So now the whole idea, it's a critical currency and it's all about consumer endorsement. And we know that basically uh, most consumers will try a product or try a brand if they see genuine, authentic, detailed customer reviews. And that currency is now becoming mainstream. And I think that's really helped consumers just get over that hurdle. Yeah, but but there is an experience lost where, you know, you used to go to the mall and you maybe have lunch with friends. I mean, that mm. experience seems to be disappearing. But with the costs of of brick and mortar, um, you know, you, you look at a big property like a Yorkdale where they're shut down right now. And you, know, you can only imagine the costs of brick and mortar there that have to be paid for and no sales coming in right now. At some point, you know, when you get companies like The Gap who are saying, you know what, we're just not going to do storefronts anymore because they can do it just as easily online. How many more years do we have of the bricks and mortar? I think that is a, an, you know, an absolute question and, and challenge. I think um, there are examples of brands um, that are continuing to, to thrive and survive where the experience is really good. I think Canadian brands like you know, Lululemon and even Aritzia mm-hmm. from BC who have managed to you know, develop an online platform. And I think it's about omnichannel. I think consumers don't right away say today or I'm going to shop online. It's like, I want this. And you know, one day they may do it online because they don't have time or they want to research. Or the next time they'll say, I'm going to meet a friend and let's go and, and have it. And I think that's what consumers really like is the opportunity to choose and be flexible. But I think the brands that will survive have to provide superior products, superior service, and value. Canadians are, you know, it's really important for them to save money. Uh, saving money, we're one of the, you know, it's very important to Canadians, even more than Americans. It's why we read flyers. It's why we look for deals. And often people will shop online, but then actually still go in store. And if they can shop online, but know that they can give it back in store, that is also sometimes more convenient. And guess what? Sometimes once you're in store, you'll buy something else. So I think the, the, it's about right-sizing your brand to the consumer demand. Some will move only online. There are some retailers who've closed their stores, Canadians like Altitude Sports out of Montreal. Mm-hmm. 2017, they went online and their business is booming. They've got a niche. Yeah. They're doing really well. And then other brands like Indigo, um, you know, I still think there's an, an opportunity for an experience. They've diversified their product line. It's more of an experience. Yorkdale. Yeah, is- you, you go buy a book and what you come with is like furnishings, <laughs> a scarf, baby clothes. I mean, it's unbelievable what you, you can't, I mean, what can't you buy at Indigo? It's, it's not your, uh, it's not your typical, but you know, this year will be, uh, um, you know, when we see the numbers coming out of Black Friday, it'll be crucial, I think, in indicating what kind of year retailers um, are going to have and if they will, will survive. Uh, appreciate your insight into this, Robert. Wonderful to talk to you and, uh, and stay, uh, stay well.
stay well while I don't leave the house. So th therefore I can't, I can't hurt myself other than uh, hurting <laughs> myself. All right, Robert, thank you. Right. That's uh, Robert Levy, who's the founder and president of uh, BrandSpark International. So look, you know, we'll see what the numbers, the numbers usually come out. I, we usually get a taste of what they look like by now, but uh, we'll certainly know over the weekend what was spent, but it will be in the billions. So when was the first time you heard the expression iron ring? Well, it was as a way to help shelter our seniors, and the phrase has now become a part of the pandemic lexicon and a way of life in Ontario. But is it actually helping? Global's Dave Woodward looked into the Ontario policy to answer that question as we dig into care God wrong. He was confused, didn't know why his children weren't there, didn't know why his wife wasn't coming. He was mad. He thought we didn't care. He thought his wife dumped him there to die. Jackie Delaney's father died in care, and not as a result of COVID. She believes it was directly as a result of iron ring policies. Shoving people in hospitals and long-term care homes and saying they can't have loved ones for their own protection. So that's great. You're protecting them from COVID. So you protected my dad from COVID, but he died from something else. So bravo. Well done. And she isn't the only one. Greg McVeigh, whose parents lived in a nursing home, lost both his mother and father within days of each other. We were forewarned they were going to die, and I never got to see them again. I mean, they were removed from the facility. I mean, their bodies were uh, kept sort of away from us because in case there was infection, I never got to see them. And yet, even now, as a second wave of outbreak hits nursing homes, Premier Doug Ford is still closing up the ranks, calling for another lockdown. Visitors to long-term care homes in these areas will have to be restricted to staff, essential visitors, and essential caregivers only. But has the Iron Ring policy done more harm than good? Has the cure been worse than the disease? According to top experts in the field, it certainly appears that way. Nearly nine months after Premier Ford first spoke the words, we realized the Iron Ring policy was not incredibly effective. More than 2,000 people in residences have died so far from COVID-19. And while many in the health community agree it was the right thing to do at the time, it came with other perils. Dr. Zane Chagla is an infectious disease physician and associate professor at McMaster. There were significant downstream effects of it, right? We, we saw some of these elderly and, and vulnerable individuals get almost a... Um, you know, a solitary confinement syndrome where they were unable to really get that emotional and cognitive impact from caregivers and families. Loneliness, broken heart syndrome, or as Dr. Chagla termed it, solitary confinement syndrome. Laura Tamblin Watts is the CEO of CanAge, a seniors advocacy group, and says that having family in the homes is crucial for the resident's survival. People, I think, generally understand the mental and emotional toll that it may be taken to be essentially, and I'm not overstating this, imprisoned often in their small rooms for months and months on end, like actually in solitary confinement in many cases. But we don't necessarily immediately grasp the physical challenges that raised as a result. So we have cases of people who were essentially starving to death because they were not being either fed or they weren't getting the cues to eat that you would ordinarily get by sitting together 
Lisa Levin, the CEO of Advantage Ontario, agrees with Tamblin Watts. She says that staffing took a huge hit when essential family members were told they couldn't be there. It's also another set of hands because, frankly, we don't have enough staff in long-term care. So losing the family caregivers who would come in to do that work also put greater pressure on the staff and greater strain and stress on the residents in long-term care. And while there are no numbers to prove how many people may have died from loneliness or broken heart syndrome, anecdotal evidence suggests that not having family in the homes during the time they were needed most had a huge impact on the health of our seniors. And geriatrician Dr. Nathan Stahl says that putting an iron ring around them is pure fallacy. If you actually want to shield long-term care residents from COVID-19, you'd also have to shield the more than 100,000 long-term care workers who live in the community where the virus is surging. But this is heartbreaking what's happening to our older adults, not only the deaths, but the conditions that we are imposing on them because we are not taking action to suppress community transmission and, and really get this under control in our province. But still, Minister of Long-Term Care Marilee Fullerton maintains they did what they had to do. We were using the advice of the medical experts and the uh, chief medical officer, the assistant uh, uh, medical officer of health, and really understanding um, what we can do to balance that. So I think we've struck the right balance with the caregiver, the dedicated caregiver piece. Uh, You know, I think in hindsight, it would have been better to have them in sooner. But if the minister thought those essential caregivers should have been in sooner, then why weren't they? Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, says it was because they needed to make sure those who were coming into the home were being safe in the first place. We're limiting their own lifestyles and behavior to make sure they are not going to be the cause of that infection being introduced. So where do we go from here? The province says it's committed to keeping seniors safe, and we're already seeing a second wave of lockdowns in nursing homes and long-term care, albeit with essential family allowed. Dr. Williams says he hopes we can keep it that way. I would like to think that we would not limit essential visitors, but we'd have to be very careful that they are being monitored because if they're essential visitors coming from where there's high community spread, they're even more susceptible. That means maybe they're going to have to even be more and more careful with their personal behavior in order to maintain their role, very critical role in my mind, of being that essential visitor on a go-forward basis. Many are hoping the province won't completely lock out family again. Jackie Delaney, for one, says the heartbreak that she and her family endured because of the policy was just too much to bear. The cruelest thing that was done to my dad was when he was moved from ICU and his wife was taken from him. They kissed each other through their masks and she said goodbye to him as he was wheeled onto the elevator. And she said she knew she'd never see him alive again. That is cruelty. For Global News, I'm Dave Woodard. On Monday, the Care Gone Wrong series will continue with a look at the lengths people are going to avoid putting their loved ones in a nursing home. It is a very big stress right now. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday, starting live 6.30 through 10. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.